The following is a CSPN Media podcast presentation. You are listening to Know the Score on the CSPN. I'm your host, Tyler Ball, and alongside me is my partner in crime, Don DeLorente. Our Twitters, you can find us on Twitter under the Know the Score uh, the notice for uh, account, which is at KTS pod. And you can also find myself at T a B a L L number one. And you can find Don at Don Delorente. We're going to go right into it. Uh, we're going to discuss the final four and actually, uh, being, uh, we, we're just going to break down just coming from the championship game as we're, we're both Carolina fans in perspective. Uh, Don, so let's first talk about uh, the game itself and, you know, what were your thoughts on it? And I'll give a perspective from, from a general idea. Go ahead. Um, thank you, Tyler. The game itself was just ugly. Um, the referees were really locked down the second half. Um, the first half was pretty good, had nice flow to it. Um, teams were moving up and down the court. They weren't necessarily making a lot of shots, but at least they were, you know, keeping the ball in play, you know, you know, having some fluid action, some, I thought that that was the key early. Gonzaga was doing a pretty good job on the rebounding part. They were making their threes, uh, getting a lot of inside-outside action. And then uh, their, where they post up their guard to kind of lift their big men was really effective in the first half. Seems like uh, Carolina had to make a, a, an adjustment to that uh, for the second half. On Carolina's part, um, just seems like they didn't drive the ball enough. They were just shooting jump shots and not – you know, trying to get the ball inside the paint by either driving it or passing it into big guys like them post up, kind of take their time and work, uh, you know, take their time and, and make their moves. So just seems like Gonzaga had playing to start the game. Second half, Carolina just set their defense up, and that's all it was. And they just be in. They finally got the ball into the paint. Joel Berry came alive, and that, that's what happened. I mean, it wasn't anything that Gonzaga didn't do. They pretty much played the same game they had the first half. Um, Collins fouling out, I think, was a big, big key for them because um, while he was in the game, he just wasn't in the game very long. <laughs> so Hicks, what everybody expected Isaiah Hicks to do actually happened to Collins on Gonzaga's side. So uh, just tell the two halves, and uh, Carolina just made enough plays defensively and surprisingly for anybody who likes Carolina and follows Roy Williams and knows the history that this isn't really his calling. But in this tournament, it was because they never played – their best. They played some spurts where they looked their best, but they never put it all together for 40 minutes. So just a testament to Roy getting these kids to buy into the defense and just the kids themselves willing to take on the challenge. And um, they stepped up and they got it done. And I'm so happy. Okay. My takeaway from the national championship was uh, Gazaka, I felt could have done so much more. But they were obviously the most rattled by the officiating. Um, it seemed like every time uh, they tried to go get the ball inside, uh, they were met with resistance. And instead of going up, going back out and reposting, and maybe getting more, getting some more perimeter looks from their uh, their guards, particularly uh, Williams and Matthews, it seemed like they seemed like it was they were in a hurry, uh, particularly in the last the possessions after the final TV timeout going into the final four minutes, it just seemed like they, they had a little bit of panic and maybe that's 
uh, that's the cause of not having a true, true, true point guard. Um, you know, Williams Goss tried to take the role of leadership, but he's not a point guard. And I just think that not having that kind of hurt them down the stretch. Uh, you know, they still got some of the opportunities that they wanted, but there were just times where you didn't see a guy just really uh, take charge and, you know, not panic uh, like like Joel Berry did, for example, for Carolina. And I think and I think that was the difference, to be honest, um, other than Colin, Collins fouling out was huge because not only was he uh, he didn't get a lot of minutes, but every time they got the ball into inside to him, there was no one that could stop him. Getting and, and let's just add to the fact that four of his five fouls were on the offensive end. Um, whether he was coming either coming over the back where Carolina had position on a rebound, or he was he got called for setting two illegal screens. So it just said like he never really got into the flow, but when they got him the ball, he could score. Uh, we got uh, their center, uh, was Cal- uh, I want to say Burkowski, but that's not it. But uh, Kennedy. Pernoski, as Pernoski, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Kennedy Meeks got into, got into Pernoski's head more than anything else on the court. Um, maybe because he was smaller and quicker to the ball, and maybe he just, most of the time, he just got good good defensive position. And I think finding that he couldn't necessarily shoot over Meeks, he had to just, he had to actually make a move to get by Meeks to score. Uh, several times, Pernoski felt that he was closer to the rim than he actually was. I mean, he missed about three or four layups, and that was clearly because of Meek's presence. Uh, this, honestly, was about as bad as the 2011 Duke uh, UConn Butler. I mean, I, I know I tweeted it twice during the game that this is Butler bad. And, I, and, and that's not a, a thing about Butler. It was just those two championship games that Butler was in. Butler forced the action and played so well defensively that there were just there was just no rhythm to the game and, and they just couldn't hit shot. Nobody could hit shots. I mean, Justin Jackson went 0 of nine. Uh yeah, from the three point yeah, line. Yes, it, but Justin Jackson countered that by probably playing his best one on one defensive job of the year on Nigel Williams Goss. I don't know, man. He uh Dylan Brooks. Pinson team helped too. Pinson team Pinson helped out too, but you could tell that Williams Goss was not himself. And uh right. And uh, yeah, well, J- Jackson was 0 of nine from uh, from three, but when he was able to get inside, you know, he could get his shots off off the shorter uh, Williams Goss, and he definitely bothered Williams Goss on the other end. Um, yeah. Other than that, um, there were some lapses that on in the first half defensively, and Carolina clearly corrected those. Um, one blatant one I saw was when uh, when Pinson got caught in a back screen and, and rotated late to uh to Matthews and that led to a three and then two uh two or three possessions later uh Barry doesn't doesn't get back over on an out of bounce play and they just swing it over to Matthews and hit another three. So it was it was little things like that that Carolina had to correct. And once they did that, that made the game it just took whoever was gonna make the last run of the game and of course Carolina did as they scored the game's last eight points. Um, right. Overall, now, see, now, now, hold on, hold on. Now, see, we can talk about that in like a clinical sense. So, now I'm gonna talk about this as in a fan sense, okay? Mm-hmm. So, I went to the Dean Dome to watch the game because a, I wanted a party. B, started the season at the Dean Dome, ended the season at the Dean Dome, and C, the basketball guys couldn't be that cruel to me twice. Went to the Dean Dome last year and 
they almost needed the paramedics to get me back to my car. I was so devastated. So that whole game was just nervous because one, the flow wasn't good, so they could never get going. And two, they weren't playing smart. They weren't doing the things that were easy. They would do them for like two or three possessions in a row and then stop, get up like four or five points, bad plays on defense, like you're saying, some laps on defense. was like so many nerves. So that last time out, it was like, ugh, my knees were so weak. It was like very hard to stand up because everybody was standing up, couldn't see anything. But yeah, just a feeling of overall elation when Kennedy Meeks blocked that pass, uh, blocked that shot, excuse me. Uh, a whole year, 365 days of wanting this so bad to happen finally came true. And then it was just like a total excitement, bedlam. And the Dome was crazy. Everybody flooding out, running towards Franklin Street to go have the party of all parties. Um, same thing in, in Greensboro. Um, we were live at, um, there, was, there were four main bars in the city and all were packed. Um, I was in the, uh, I was in one in right on the edge of, as you go in toward the east of the city. Uh, Theo Pinson, who's a Greensboro native, had some of his uh, cousins who didn't go to Glendale. They were actually in the bar. So, of course, it was just about about 200 Carolina fans in the pot that only holds about 350, uh, 350 capacity. So, so it was, it was very, very live. Um, And we, we kind of, Felt the same way. Uh, there were there were Carolina fans. Of course, there were there were some there were some Duke fans that were there to to to, to root on Gonzaga, of course. And you know that was just um, it was an, it was an exciting time. Uh, of course, yeah. Every I think the entire nation erupted when uh, Williams Goss was on a fadeaway, and it never got to the rim. And of course, Barry hit Jackson, and of course. Uh, Jack, Jackson was streaking down court and Barry hit him and got the ducks, which was which was tremendous. Um, and then of course Kennedy makes the makes the next next play and intercepts the the, the next pass. So those two plays are going to be remembered um, along with Barry's last three pointer and uh, Hick oh Hicks Hicks layup that yeah put, put the, that gave him the lead for good is probably going to be those those are the three plays that they're going to take away. Um, just because Carolina actually won a game, won a tournament by playing deep, by buckling down and playing defense, which is incredible. And you're right, because um, that's not that's not what Roy does. That's not uh, even his Kansas teams. He felt that you know he was going to try to blow you out. He wasn't necessarily trying to outscore you. And uh, you know that was brought up across the country today, where yeah. uh, folks say that you know you can't, you know Roy can't coach, or you know Roy doesn't want to. You know, you can't trust Roy to diagram a play to win the game. I'm like, okay, I'm fine with that because he wants to be up by 15 at the end. So this was one of those right. where they found the word. Roy Williams' philosophy comes from Dean Smith. Dean Smith always said that at the time. He said, you know, maybe on one day for one minute on one hole, I could be better than Jack Nicholas if we played. But the more holes we play, the better he's going to do than me simply because he's better than I am. So that's what their philosophy was all about. If we can get the ball more times and make the game have more possessions in it, then eventually if I get the chance to shoot at the basket more times, then I'm going to make more than you do because I'm better than you are. Right. That's why he loads up. With, he's gone. He. Everybody has talked about uh, this, this trend of, shooting threes and making that the offense uh, want to people want to adapt like the, the warriors and the wizards and 
these other teams in the NBA. Uh, college is going that way, but Carolina's a little bit different. Carolina matches the pace, which has gone up astronomically over the last decade, but they're still going to come at you with, with two bigs that are very athletic, and they actually he's going to keep them on the floor. He's going to keep two bigs on the floor almost at all times, and these and they get a lot of free points because they're big. Carolina's bigs always run the floor. Um, even uh, when when you look at uh, look at Sean May and Tyler out ahead of their man on the court, and the guard they had all the guards had to do was just feed him the ball, and they caught it and dumped it. So, well, Tyler. It's, it's been that way, like Kenny Smith said in the pregame when he was talking about Carolina's defense, the same thing about their offense. It's been the same for 35 years, man. I've watched North Carolina basketball my whole life, and except for the little time that Matt Darty was the coach, everything is the same, the way they run the offense. Now the setups are a little bit different. Roy likes to run a lot of stuff, his little false motion, where Coach Smith liked to do a lot of his you know early offense off the tee cut. With yeah. the you know mm-hmm. point guard coming across the free throw line and then getting the ball and starting the offense, Roy kind of likes to start off in the box and if he can get a little quick, easy one off the box, he'll take it and then they're going to go into our offense. But other than that, everything else is basically the same. the 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 way they play defense, the way they use the timeouts, the way they run their offense, the way everything is geared around the point guard, realizing that he's the man. See, most people get fooled by Carolina's inside game, which is the best in the country when it's going good. But really, when they win the championships, especially under Roy Williams, is when the point guard has finally clicked on and realized that if he's a 20-point scorer in the tournament, at least most of the games are the games that matter, Carolina will win because everything else is off the tempo, and he's already been trained the whole season to get the ball ahead, get the ball ahead, get the ball ahead. So if there's those opportunities there, everybody else will get their points. But once they start scoring, think about Ty Lawson, think about Raymond Felton, and then you think about Joel Berry. They all towards the end of the season, except for Barry, because his shooting, you know, went away because he had bad ankles. But those other two guys, especially once their scoring picked up, the team went all the way to the championship. So and you look that's at, the philosophy. You look at the ones that basketball. did win it, even the ones that did win it under Smith, uh, the great the great teams that did win under Smith all had great point guards. You look at McKinnis, yeah. uh, you mm-hmm. look at Ed Coda, uh, which I think is yeah. one of the greatest travesties in Carolina history is him not getting a national championship because. Yeah. Uh, because I, he is the perfect Carolina point guard. I, it's I the first time I, ever that Carolina's point guard got hurt in the tournament, and it didn't take him out for the entire tournament. Exactly. Like uh, mm-hmm. Kenny Smith broke his mm-hmm. broke his arm going into the tournament, the ACC tournament, missed the tournament. Uh, Michael Jordan's last year. Then you had uh, Kendall Marshall, of course, broke his wrist in the tournament and couldn't play against Kansas in the Elite Eight. And then you had. Um, so, you know, this just makes the one time where Joe Barry got hurt in the tournament. He didn't have to miss the whole thing, and it actually prevailed. So, another key. Um, as we look going into uh, we look going into next year, um, obviously it's, it's all about who um, – who, always about who has the best players. So, you look at your – you look at your Arizona. You look at Gonzaga, which gets a lot back. Um, you look at Kentucky – who's uh, somehow, you know, they managed to reload. So despite whoever declares, they've already had three declares. Um, uh, Monk, of course, Fox, and uh, Bam declared today as we record. Um, but you know Kentucky will be in, be, be back. Um, you look at Duke, um, you don't know what Allen's going to do, but still uh, just uh, Tatum is, you know, Tatum is gone. 
and uh, Giles is gone. So you kind of figure out what's, who's going to go where. Um, you're going to have to think that UCLA uh, UCLA will likely be, be in the fold because they got a great freshman class coming. Uh, if they if they lose TJ Leaf, that's a big blow. Um, but uh, of course they'll have uh, they'll they'll need a point guard, and of course they'll get uh, Jello Ball, who will be probably your your designated shooter. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see who how these uh, how these All Americans as they as they go to wherever they go, they're going to figure out guys like Jalen Hands, for example, uh, the number one freshman in the country, Michael Porter. Uh, where is he going after after Lorenzo Romar got fired at Washington? Is he going to follow his dad to Missouri, or is he going to end up uh, on the West Coast, or at at a you know possibly UCLA or or somewhere else? So uh, no, he's already he's already declared that he's going to Missouri. Yeah, okay, he's going to follow. Okay, okay, so he's going to Missouri. All right, well, then I guess you make that makes them obviously a, a possible threat now. So. Um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens this offseason with these guys declare and end up at their schools because you know it's it's not like it's not our father's NCAA anymore. I mean these these freshmen matter, so <laughs> uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I, I don't know what Carolina's going to have to come back. Um, I don't know. Well, uh, I mean Barry Barry. I think if Barry graduates, he has one more year, so uh, it could be wise for him to stay. Mm-hmm. Could be, could be, uh, yeah. He could very well be back. I mean, it's a lot of it's a lot of point guards that are better than him declaring, and I think he would be at best he's a mid second rounder. So it could benefit him to come back. Totally but, uh, agree. But you know, we'll we'll wait and see on that. It's gonna be very very interesting. I'm looking forward to uh, come around October when practice resume when uh, practice begins for 2017-2018. We'll see. Um, as we go forward, just want to remind you that you are listening to Know the Score on the CSPN. You can find us on just about any app that you use to listen to your podcast radio. Of course, we're on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Um, if you use any of those apps, you can find us. All you have to do is just search Know the Score. And once again, you can find us on Twitter at KTSPOD. I uh, just want to give a shout out to our other uh, two hosts, uh, Nebias Wilborn at nwilborn19 and Jesse at that's so Jesse. That's uh, uh, that's so, and then J E S S Y. Um, we move on to the NBA, and this is literally the last. We are in the last week of the regular season. Uh, most teams have five games or less to play. Uh, kind of have your races within. Within the races, you know, there's always the race for eighth uh, for that last playoff spot. Uh, but actually, it's going to be a few more, few more uh, things involved. Uh, in the Eastern Conference, you have a dead heat between the Cavaliers and the Celtics for the top seed. You also have a dead heat for the, which would be the uh, the three and four seed with the Wizards and the uh, is it the uh, the Hawks? Wait one second, yeah. Cavs and Celtics are Cavs and Celtics are tied for uh, for first place in the East and in Toronto the, and Washington. Toronto and yeah, the Wizards and the and the Raptors. I'm sorry, uh, F, uh, Cavs and Celtics are 50 and 27. The Raptors and Wizards are 47 and 31. So they're practically uh, 
people locked in for that battle for the three. Um, Milwaukee and Atlanta are basically a half a game apart for five and six. For five and six, and then seven and seven, eight and nine are essentially a half game between the Bulls and Pacers, which are locked, which are in a uh, dead heat for the seven and eight, and the Heat are a half game behind them uh, for at they're in ninth, and you know another game and a half back are the Hornets so, at thirty six and forty two. So. So, so basically what we're saying is you, you can't afford a week this week if you're in the Eastern Conference because you might be in a spot that's favorable now, but by the end of the weekend, you may be somewhere that you don't want to be in a matchup that you don't want in the first round or totally out of the playoffs altogether if you're down here at the bottom. Right. And you look at right now, if I'm the Celtics, let's say I'm the Celtics and I get the number one, what matchup would I prefer? The Heat, the Bulls, or the Pacers? Because and I want to bring this up for the Celtics because I think Cleveland is, Cleveland doesn't care. Cleveland just Cleveland will line it lot will roll the basketballs out and and just play. So the question is for Boston. Uh, what, what matchup do you? What matchup would you prefer the Celtics getting? I would probably say Miami is just because I think Isaiah Thomas can kind of halfway guard Brodich a little bit. I don't think that he can guard. Uh, Rondo. Well, maybe Rondo too, because Rondo's not going to try to shoot on him. He'll just try to post him up and they can double team and force Rondo. So, yeah, maybe Indiana and Chicago. I mean, Indiana and uh, Miami. Uh, or Chicago, excuse me, Chicago and Miami. I don't think Indiana is a team they really need spot right now just because it's a bad matchup with, for their most important player who is very good on offense, but he's kind of mismatched, not in your favor on defense. That's one of those where if the Pacers Pacers match up against them, that's very that is one of those series where Paul George could take over. Mm-hmm. If Paul George, if you ask for four for four games, four great games out of Paul George, that can happen. Because even though the Celtics are a terrific defensive team, uh, you know, Paul is an elite is an elite player, and he's at it, and he's got a favorable matchup when he goes up against a guy like Crowder. So I, I like I like Indiana's chances if they get in that. In that two seven, or even the one eight, um, and you look at the Wizards. Wizards are interesting here. Um, they're going to play their first home court playoff series in a while. Uh, I, it's it's amazing that they finally they finally come to fruition. Uh, they haven't been hit with the super super serious injury bug, so um, I'm looking forward to them. Uh, getting, I mean, they had a couple of chances two years ago before John Wall went down with the wrist injury, but now they're they're going to have home court. So, yeah, I think everybody would say they they upgraded their coach since yeah. uh, that 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 run too. Scott, yeah, I think no injuries plus Scott. Uh, you have to get credit to Scott Brooks. I mean, I mean, Scott Brooks is clearly an upgrade from uh, from Randy Whitman. Uh, the key, of course, to them is getting getting scoring from Gortat and getting scoring from their bench. Uh, as long as they do that, and they they win, if they win the battle of the bench, and Beal, uh, I don't shots, think that's their. Yeah, I think that's more important. I, they don't really have a bench, so I think that's yeah. kind of a lost cause. I think they want to keep leads and sustain leads. Their that's, wing players the going to have to make in some of that. Um, you, as long right. as they don't lose, they don't lose lead, and Wall comes back in down 12, 12 to ten point, or or down yeah ten or twelve points. If the bench can just keep leads and not not just take a serious L when the other team's bench comes in. And, you know, I'm not 
a real big fan of them going up against Giannis and company in Milwaukee. Uh, I would be very afraid of him. That's a high matchup. If I'm any team, just for the the mess up, the metrics, and what everybody has ever thought about the game of basketball, I'd love for them to play the Cavs and watch Giannis guard everybody on the Cavs at like one point in the series. That would that would be wild to see (laughs) try to guard LeBron. That would be that would actually be pretty cool. But but yeah yeah but uh, I I let the Wizards. I will hopefully hopefully the Wizards can kind of. Sneak, sneak in and get the and knock the Raptors into the four, and they can get the three and get a great matchup with the Hawks. I would absolutely love that. Yeah, um, yeah, that'd be that'd be actually a fun series to attend, though. Between traveling yeah. between the two cities, I'm pretty sure the parties would be oh, be pretty yeah, good. overly lit. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I um, there's gonna be a bunch of beat reporters uh, scrambling trying to get that series if that's the matchup. You ain't lying. Um, yeah, we, yeah, I would love to see a Wizards Hawks, and then Wizards would move on to as the um, as the three to take on the Celtics, which will probably be the, which would be the most compelling series in probably in the entire in the entire uh, playoffs if the Wizards were to get get the Celtics because you have the battle of two of the top the top two East Point guards will go up against each other and teams. You're saying, like you're saying if, the Wizards are, if the Wizards are three and they move on? Yeah, if the nah, Wizards are three and the Celtics are the two. Played. Oh, yeah, if the Celtics are the two. Yeah, so you're assuming Cleveland's going to win the East. Yeah, I would assume Cleveland wins the East. Area. Okay, all right. I got you. I'll follow you now. Okay. Um, if Cleveland doesn't want to – LeBron's getting older. I think the Cavs are starting to maybe wear down a little bit because, you know, they've – Done this run, won the title, fell short in the title. Now they're trying to come back again and go three times in a row. Kind of like the Warriors at the end of last year, they kind of hit that wall and then looked like they were interested. But I don't know if the Cavs have that spark to them this year to just turn it on. And I don't know if they can survive having to play the Wizards, who are probably going to test them and, you know, give them a couple of games. They're going to go down to wire and then have to turn right back around and maybe get Boston too and don't have that home court where I know he's done it before. But, you know, how many times can you ask LeBron to go to that well and, and put on the gate, you know? And he, he, the plan, he's talking, the plan, of course. He, the he, plan when he came to Cleveland and surrounded himself with all these people, all these choice pieces that he, that he quote-unquote wanted, was to ensure that he wouldn't have to put on the cape so much, that he would, you know, have some super. And then he would just have to be super in, you know, here or there and not have to go full-time. But it looks like for this run, if they're going to make it back to where they want to be and give Cleveland back-to-back championships, he's going to have to go in the phone booth and come out full-time with Kate. And, and I just don't know. Both ends of the court, too. Right. And I just don't know if he's if he's got that in him for a whole 16 wins this time around. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's shift down to, this, to the uh, Western Conference, where it's pretty much all set. Um uh, there's only one spot up for grabs, which where Denver and, and Portland are uh, going hard for the uh, the last playoff spot. Uh, the Blazers are literally up half a game. Uh, I think the edge there is going to be Portland, um, because simply because they have Dame Lillard and he tends to to uh, he is probably the only one on those two teams. He's probably the only player that's capable of having a dominant type performance because uh, he knows. He knows that that that, that playoff stretches. Um, he tends to tune things up for that, and of course, he has a little bit more help than the Nuggets do. So, assuming that they they finished eighth, 
Uh, of course, that's just all it is. Is the only grand prize is to play the Warriors in the first round. Uh, Warriors are playing probably their best basketball of the season right now. Uh, they've won, I think they're up to 11 in a row. Um, they're going to end up at least four games of, of the Spurs um, as they win the. Uh, they've already won. They've already clinched the division, of course. But uh, so let's look at now, and, the uh, interesting matchup. As you downplay the Kevin Durant's coming back on Saturday. Oh yeah, that that too. So it's, <laughs> oh yeah, that too. <laughs> you know they're playing their best basketball and they get Durant, which is crazy. Uh, well, as we look at their road at the Warriors' road to the finals, um, let's just go with the simple breakdown. Um, the one the uh, one eight, which will be the Blazers. Uh, let's go to two seven, which is the Spurs Grizzlies. Uh, that's that's an ugly series. But I think Kawhi Leonard is just the dominant factor. Um, the Grizzlies love Kawhi to, Leonard versus Tony Allen. And, and, and that, come, passing, come on, the that's passing of the unfair. torch. That's <laughs> unfair. Um, Tony Allen does Tony Allen have one more last effort in him to, to shut down Kawhi? Even if he does, I just think they have. There's going to be too much Aldridge, and they just come at you in waves. Um, I don't know. The, the, I don't know. The, that's the one. That's the one team though that Memphis kind of is built to play against, and they're kind of built to play against each other, mm-hmm. or the Spurs and the Grizzlies. And because I mean, it makes sense as you know the guy who coaches Memphis used to be a part of the uh, Spurs staff, but they kind of are set up the same where they kind of have the two big men down low. The Spurs just have the better at small forward, but I mean he's still predicated defensive first kind of guy, small forward, same way with Tony Allen, and then the backcourt. I think that. The Grizzlies have the advantage in the backcourt because, you know, Tony Parker's getting up there. Um, so, and Conley's, of course, is still a beast. So, you know, it's going to be an interesting series. If, if Memphis can maybe get the pace up a little bit, they might be able to to get by the Spurs. I think they take one game at the max um, because these, well, the be last easy. two matches haven't been close. Actually, they've been Spurs sweeps. So, right. I'm not sure if you get um, – but I'm not sure. You, just, you got a little bit more efficient. Uh, you got a little bit more efficient play from the bench, and I think mm-hmm. that's going to be the, the the real edge that pushes the Spurs above. But, but I would say this: I would mm-hmm. say this. The last two times that they played in the playoffs, the Spurs were playing that flow type of basketball: move the ball, mm-hmm. move the man, get the best and closest shots you can to the basket, and constantly keep the ball. Now they don't play that way. Now. They old school, dump it down, back to the basket, wait to see what your defense does, and then we do what we're going to do. Either you double team and we throw it to the open man and kick it around and try to get a three or repost, or you single up, then our big man kind of does what he's going to do. And I think Memphis can, I think that plays into Memphis's hands defensively better than their old way that they would play, where, you know, they would have all these crazy mismatches because, you know, Randolph and Gazal would have to come out and play these guys out in the perimeter a little bit more in the past way that the Spurs ran their offense. They're a very intriguing team if you watch them years, just the way that they've evolved from playing that almost like soccer style of basketball to now going back to almost like an early 90s style of basketball. Now, of course, the best matchup in the playoffs in the first round will likely be the Rockets and the the Thunder. Um, Probably will decide the MVP. Um, Of course, you have Westbrook taking on uh, James Harden, uh, your top two MVP candidates. Of course, uh, Westbrook does not have to do anything else this season, and he will finish with a triple-double. 
he's already he's practically clinched it already by average. So you have that. You have Harden, who's put up monstrous numbers himself. Uh, he's probably going to win the NBA assist title. Uh, just uh, I, I I don't know about this this matchup because I know the Rockets have better weapons. I know Russ is going to be Russ, but can the Thunder make enough shots to stay competitive in the series? Uh, Billy Donovan may have to trade off Derek, Doug McDermott's defense and his lack of it for what he may be able to provide in just a consistency type of way or threat. Yeah, because that's the whole deficiency of the Thunder, the way they're made up right now. is just they don't have anybody who can shoot. Like, the rest can drive. They've got the guys who can rebound it and board it or finish it when he drives and kicks it to them. But when he drives and kicks it outside of the paint, you just kind of put your head down and hope for the best. Yeah, because you got Oladipo and, and you know, Robinson is already known as a self-check. So, <laughs> you know, and, you know, Sabonis can make a few shots, but that's not his game. I mean, he's going right. to have to provide that and some. Um, I just don't know if you can have Russell do it for one game. You can have him do it for two games. But I don't know if you, you can have for four and have to go back and forth and back and forth. And well, then have the, to first round, the first round is so long. The game It'll be like, you know, you might play on Saturday and then you might not play your second game until Wednesday. You know, it, it, it's weird the, the way that they space the games out in the first round because they have so many games to put on TV. So the first round, yeah, he can probably get away with it. But, yeah, and once you get into the second round of conference finals and finals where that pattern, is, the days in between games are a lot shorter, then, yeah, then I think that's where your point will come in where he'll just wear down if they, you know, and you just bank on him not being able to do it. But then again, talking about, I mean, he takes no plays, no days off, so – who says he can't do it? <laughs> um, as a, just a just an anomaly for a series, the Jazz and the Clippers. I, I almost think this is the yeah. most evenly matched series in the in the first round. Uh, I think you just roll the ball out, and whoever whoever has the better offensive output from their starting five is probably going to be the best the best team in the series. Of course, that leads to X factor Jamal Crawford who can still fill it up. Um, he's, he's a, He probably won't win the six-man award again this year, but, you know, he's still a threat off the bench and probably probably the best off-the-bench guy you'll see in these playoffs. Um, I, I'm looking forward to the series. I mean, this is – the Jazz actually being in the fourth spot without Dante Exum is probably one of the most underrated and remarkable stories of this season. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, obviously uh, – you know, I mean, it's Quinn Snyder. I mean, what in the world? What he, he, nobody expected this this quickly, but you know, uh, Quinn trusts trusts Jerry. I mean, he's he's going to the Jerry Sloan playbook actually, and you know, he gets a couple of shooters. He has a big he has a big man instead of having a big man who just dumping it down to score. He has a big man who can erase a lot of mistakes on defense and. Um, in the uh, as we call them the stifle tower, <laughs> but uh, and they got two of two of the most efficient players in the uh, in the conference as far as scoring in Hood and Gordon Hayward, uh, who's kind of coming to his own. The stretch uh, four has revolutionized the game of basketball because now, if you do have an offensively challenged center that all he can do is play defense, 
you're more likely to let him stay on the court for that if you have a foreman who can operate around him, meaning outside of the paint. And, you know, that's kind of where Blake Griffith had to kind of get his game to where he didn't have to stand in the paint with DeAndre Jordan because then they'd be fighting for the same real estate. So that's why Blake's game has now gone out to three-point line. So now DeAndre can have the, all the paint to operate if he's if they're both in the game. And Blake does his work, you know, out out on the floor a little bit more now. And that's kind of, I think, the change that basketball has gone through now. So now it's not traditional two guys in the paint clocking up everything where you know, can't drive and the little guys can't do the things that they like to do and you get that spectacular style of basketball. And, and here's the thing with Blake Griffin now. Um, you know, for some reason, narrative on Blake now is he's just a regular, he's a guy, a regular guy now. Um, he's not the dynamic, uh, I'm going to go to the rim and just attack, 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 attack. Uh, he's now more, he's more reliant on his jump shot than ever. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the Clippers really need that still in the playoffs. I think I think they just they want him to be more aggressive. I think he's been he's been a little bit more laid back as an off as an offensive player, and now it's kind of hurt his uh, it's kind of hurt his value, I guess. Um, but I think that's the trade off trade off that they had when they resigned DeAndre Jordan and kind of promised them to make him a little bit more of a bigger focus as far as their offense goes. Well, if you're going to do that, then Blake, you know, in the paint and attacking the paint because, you know, DeAndre posted up or, you know, run plays where he can get alley-oops off ball reversals. So you got to space the floor, and the person who can do that is Blake. So I think that may just be kind of their strategy, not necessarily him and his demeanor changing, but just the way that they're playing based off of some promises that they made to a player that they probably should have let go and would have been in their best interest. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's really interesting where, you know, where his future is within the team and where that team's future is going to be because, um, I mean, their owner wants to win. And I don't know if this team, this team is kind of, it's just, they're just stuck in a rut, I guess. They're not, yeah, they're, they're not good enough to compete with, let's say the the Warriors and Spurs, but they're not bad enough to tank. Well, it's funny because I mean, before the before the Warriors changed coaches, the Clippers were it. You know, they were the next team kind of nipping at the heels of the Spurs. Everybody thought it was going to be the Clippers that were going to make that, you know, jump past the Spurs. But the I mean, because out of nowhere to win the championship. I mean, they were good and you could see some things happening. But you didn't expect them to go from, I think they were the seventh seed or the sixth seed when they they love San Antonio in six games to we're going to run a gun our way to a championship over the Cavs and then come back and be the best team everybody's seen in the regular season. Nobody, you know, that wasn't four years ago. If you go back and look at the NBA, poised to be the next big threat and then to see how far they've fallen in those same four years is amazing. And it just goes to show that they really need to tell Doc, hey, man, we know you like having all this power and all this and all that. Keep the title, but we'll get you somebody in here who really knows what they're doing and let him do all the work for you. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody that doesn't have an ego that'll let Doc take the 
crap and who they get in free agency, but it's really the, you know, he's pulling on the strings and making all the things happen because they have a team that just doesn't make sense as far as the way they're made up. And I think that's hurting them more than anything. It's just their personnel falls short because like you said, they don't have a small forward. They are really playing kind of with one arm behind their back at shooting guard. I mean, JJ Redick has made tremendous strides to become a starter, you know, just late in his career, but shooting guards in the West, he's pretty down on the list. Chris Paul is getting older. I mean, he's still playing brilliant basketball, but, you know, he's losing a step. And then you've got DeAndre Jordan, who's not really an offensive threat. And, you know, what he means on defense doesn't mean as much now if teams are making threes. It doesn't really get a chance to impact the game. So I just think they just need to take an overall look at their team and their GM position and try to refocus their GM position, focus their overall team. Yep. I just – they're just in a, in a – uh, yeah, they're the, they're the enigma. That's just what it is. Um, I just can't see uh, – I can't see them moving past any um, any of those any of the teams that are, that are ahead of them. Teams. I just can't see them. Yeah. I can't see it. Yeah, they're not, they're not beating Houston. They're not beating the Spurs. They're not beating the Warriors. And if you're not doing any – doing beating any one of those three teams as a lower seed, then you're not really going to make any noise in the playoffs. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, well, as we just look into some other events, um, you know, baseball's underway. Uh, we're in opening week of the season. Um, I kind of am just waiting to see how this whole Atlanta Braves thing is going to work out, especially with the, uh, with the situation with the, with the highway in Atlanta collapsing. Uh, are they going to get fans to the stadium is the question. But they, but, you know, the Braves believe that that's where the fans are. Um, which is kind of interesting, and that's not necessarily interesting in a good way. Um, I think that, you know, Art of Cook can the Cubs repeat, of course, which is one of the most difficult things to do in pro sports, especially baseball, because just the way things go. Um, Madison Bumgarner is already off to a good start. Uh, actually, not necessarily um, – we don't necessarily mean on the, on the dish either. He banged out two, two home runs in his first, uh, his first start. In addition to pitching a perfect uh, six innings of ball, um, of course the Gi- Giants bullpen going Giants bullpen, and they and they ended up blowing the save. But um, it's good to see Madison is at it again, and he's actually one of the best hitting pitchers, uh, arguably of all time, right now. So that was that was the noise that was coming out this upcoming week. I mean this uh, this past few days of opening week. Yeah, it's it's um, funny um how the shift of baseball has not focused in the National League after all these years of American League kinda being the big news getters with Trout and the Yankees and um, you know, kinda all the Kansas City coming out of nowhere a couple of years ago to win the World Series, the kind of the American League has been kind of the darling of baseball. But it's good to see it shift back over a bit. Um I'm interested to see if the Mets pitching staff can stay together and stay healthy for a whole year. They've got, you know, three, four years of big league experience now. Start becoming more pitchers. The likelihood of injuries should go down, and they should be able to get deeper into these games, which can help the Mets bullpen. Um, I'm looking forward to see um, how McCutcheon plays in right field and if that kind of saves his legs and helps him get back to being one of the best five players uh, in the National League, especially uh, hitting the ball. Uh, and and we're interested to see if the Orioles can get over the hump and make it to the World Series. They're probably the best team in the American League who hasn't gotten to the World Series yet. Um, their pitching has got to 
be able to give their um, bullpen a little bit less work. They're starting pitching. Um, the American League Central should be fun all year. Kansas City, the Royals should be able to bounce back. Um, the Indians, of course, should be strong. They're looking to try to get back to the World Series and get a chance to redeem themselves. And then in the West, I think, you know, the West could be wide open this year. I know Texas played really good last year. Houston may be the team that shocks everybody this year, and they may actually be poised to uh, make a huge run. Um, they've got their pitches that close are lined up, um, and now they finally got some bats. Uh, George Springer, very consistent. Altuve, of course, is is MVP type of uh, talent. So I think Houston might be uh, the team to watch in all of baseball this year. Yeah, they've got the staff down to match up with the bats. And, of course, they have uh, they still have a loaded farm system ready. So uh, it's always it's not necessarily what you have from one to one to 17, but it may it may also be what you have in AAA that you're able mm-hmm. to pair up and make trades. And particularly um, particularly when you need another power bat or another power arm in the bullpen come trade deadline. So usually the teams that obviously go through the least amount of injuries, the teams that have the best farm systems and the most assets, and also the teams who play the best defense are the teams that will most likely emerge over this long haul of 162 games, which is still set, which sounds like an unreal amount of games to play, but that is how it's done. Oh man! But see, baseball is the only sport where where you play because you yeah. have days and days and days in the same place. So I mean, these guys they go play golf, they go fishing, they take in shows. Oh, yeah. um, you know. So I mean, it, I, I, it, and plus, if you've ever seen or been around a baseball, uh, you know, any type of behind the scenes, they don't really do much in their warm ups. You know, they don't really do much in their practices. They, you know, they stretch, they jog lightly. They do more grab ass and high high when it comes to on the field. Now maybe on their own time and underneath in the tunnels when they lift their weights and take their reps, you know, in the tunnel in the cage and stuff. That's probably a little bit harder. But as far as what you see on the field when they warm up, man, it's just a bunch of fun. And then they go out and then they have batting practice and batting practice is the funnest part about playing baseball because it's when you get to try everything you want to in the game that you can't. Mm-hmm. behind the back flips and catching the ball behind your back or letting it get over your head so you can run it down. And, you know, so that part of it is not hard. Two games part of it really isn't that much of a grind, except for if you play in a hot cities like Texas or, you know, Atlanta, places like that. Really. Right. Yeah, or Arizona, put it down to that. Miami. Yeah, places where the humidity is really great. Now, it may take a toll on you there, but for the most part, I think it may be easier than we think. Because they don't seem like they want to change it. Don't seem you don't hear the players ever saying, "Oh, we need less games or you know, long, shorter series or anything like that." Everybody seems to be okay with it. So maybe it's not that hard. Well, well, you know, when you think about it, um, baseball does have the highest per per pay ratio for for individual. But then you have to look at it this way too. The reason why baseball can do what it does with the 162 games is that uh, TV can pay more. I mean, they got double the games. They got double the games in the NBA and the NHL. So, of course, the players aren't going to, uh, you know, the players are built for the grind because it's the same. They go through that same grind in high school and in college where you are going to play just about every game. Games, I mean, college, college games, you play yeah. what? College, you may play six games a week. Easy. You may you yeah. play a you play a you may play on a Tuesday, a Wednesday, 
and then you play uh, double. You may play double header on Saturday and a single game on Sunday, or you just play. You may play Wednesday and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday single games. So you can easily play four four to six games in a week. So yeah, I don't. I mean, I see that happening. And the minor league schedule is the same way. Mm-hmm. Where you, yeah, you play um, almost every other day, and then a day and you travel. play. Um, uh, you play you pl- the, the season's broken down in like home and away stretches, and usually the home and away stretches, the longest ones are usually like 10, 11 games. And then sometimes you may get a short stretch where you do like a four game stretch or a three game stretch is a short one, but usually a home stretch lasts like an average of about six games. And then you go, you may have a day game and then you travel after that day game and then you may start your away stretch and that may be six to eight more days of games on the road and then you come back home and then you may have a stretch of 10 games at home. Uh-huh. So that's kind of how their schedule works. Right. And it's like I'm looking forward to uh, typically I'm looking forward to the minor league. Uh, well, of course, I'm in Greensboro, so we have a, we have a single A minor league team here. Uh, the Grasshoppers, which is the feeder program, the single A feeder program for the Marlins. Uh, we were uh, last year was a little little bit of a sad occasion. Um, the Marlins, of course, lost one of their great pitchers, uh, Jose Fernandez, in a boating accident. Uh, of course, they, he was celebrated at all of the franchises where he pitched, including in Greensboro. Um, you're going to be you're going to see a lot of. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of Fernandez jerseys, um, a lot of Marlins gear is moved around here. So uh, I think there's going to I think they're going to have a day where they say goodbye to uh, Fernandez officially. Um, as part of this early portion of the schedule. Um, but um, I actually like minor league baseball, just giving you a perspective and how it relates to fans. I mean, baseball has a great relationship with its fans all across the board, but I think the minor league aspect of being in the small towns and just giving you that dream perspective, tip, some, some, it's kind of like, like college basketball when you think about it. Uh, you know, you, they want that, that team, per se, to represent you. Uh, just like we 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 pick a major college team as a representation of ourselves, I think our small town team kind of kind of represents our city in in a way, and I think um, that's why we will always support minor league baseball if we can't get to um, you know a major league team in our town. So baseball is going to survive. I think as long as the new generation of baseball players in the high school and the secondary level uh, they continue to play the game. And that's, I think that's going to be more key than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Baseball. I think um, the World Baseball Classic, I think a lot of the fun, charisma, and the personality of that opened up a lot of people's eyes to what baseball could be. And now I think the pressure is on the MLB as a league to try to, you know, let it be that. Now, I'm not saying they have to let it go full on like that is, but let that flare and let that come out and, kind of, you know, do away with all the quote-unquote unwritten rules that are in baseball. I think that's what baseball suffers from the most is there's nothing in a 10-minute span of baseball that can attract a young person's attention usually. Whereas if you watch 10 minutes of football or you watch 10 minutes of basketball or even 10 minutes of soccer, there's going to be something that's going to make you say, ooh, ooh, you know, make you stand up and, you know, where baseball's not really that way. Yep, that's a uh, yeah. I think that that's a that's one of those things where you have to do something to catch the casual fan, and that's that's the hardest sport to catch the casual fan. 
Exactly. Baseball is a game where if you're a fan of it, it's probably been passed down to you. You've learned to appreciate it from someone else who was much likely older than you were, um, a, a, an uncle or a grandfather or a father. It, it's kind of that to understand the nuance and find out the beauty in baseball is you have to have somebody sit down and say, hey, it's cool in baseball. Or this is why you see what he did right there. That's pretty good for this type of baseball play where it's not as evident in other sports. Mm-hmm. Yep. So oh, I think yeah. that's kind of the struggle that baseball has in, is that if nobody is, if the younger kids don't take the time to sit with their grandfathers or sit with their dads or sit with their uncles or sit with their older brothers and watch a game of baseball, then they'll never fully get why, what, what's so good about it because you just can't watch it and say, I'm attracted to this game. Yeah. All right, man. Um, as I uh, look to close this out, um, was there anything that you can you uh, reflected on? Any, any final thoughts you have as we look forward to next week and um, any playoffs? Just want to say that um, you know, twenty years ago, young guy with a weird kind of first name but a cool nickname changed the way that people looked at black kids and golf together. As Tiger Woods is um, one of the Years ago, 1997, um, just historical in so many perspectives and pretty much launched his career into the stratosphere. Um, that fantastic Nike ad. Um, the Hello World you know, campaign. Yeah, that, that they were in that year was fantastic. Um, so just everything about this is just um, just remembering Tiger Woods when he was the real Tiger Woods. And let's celebrate that. And um, can't believe it's been 20 years, man. You know, I have a 1997 memory to share also related to the NCAA tournament. Um, one of the hated rivalries in the 90s on the HBCU level was in basketball where uh, North Carolina a was rebuilding its basketball program, trying to recover from a terrible um, 90s decade. And as the power shifted over to Coppin State University uh, and the legendary uh, Fang Mitchell, um, who began to dominate after Don Corbett uh, retired? Um, Mitchell took Mitchell won four regular season titles for Coppin State University. The last being the 1997 season, uh, where he took a um, undefeated Coppin State University um, as they they knocked off North Carolina and upstart North Carolina A and T in the MIAC championship, and went on to knock off the two seeded South Carolina. Gamecocks led by B.J. Mackey in the first round of the NCAA tournament. It's one of the three upsets that the conference has, along with Norfolk State taking out Missouri and Hampton taking out. Um, it's, I think that Hampton is the most uh, is the most memorable just because of them picking up their coach and the, his reaction when they were carrying him off the court. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tarvis carrying off Steve Murfield. Um, matter of fact, uh, you throw in another fact in there that their point guard, Marseille Brown, was a member of the Richmond team that beat South Carolina just three years earlier. Uh, so, so he was he was a part of two uh, major upsets. But uh, Coppin State, it's been 20 years since Coppin State, uh, that team got together in, uh, recently to celebrate the 20th anniversary. Um, it was good to see all of those guys could be back in Baltimore. Um, again, that, that team hasn't had hasn't had much to cheer about since then. I mean, they've only they've won. 
Uh, they've made two appearances in the NCAA tournament since in those 20 years. Mitchell was uh, Mitchell eventually stepped down as uh, coach and athletic director f- about five years ago, and it was it was a sad time. It was one of those uh, signs that you know basketball is changing in in the MEAC. Um, but you know, 20 years ago, a lot of people knew what MEAC basketball was about, and that team, which went undefeated in the regular season, uh, led by Turquin Mott, uh, Danny Singletary at the guard. Uh, one of my favorite all-time MEAC players, Anton Brockington, um, and one of the deadliest shooters in MEAC history in Fred Warwick. Uh, you know, they ran the table in uh, North Carolina A&T, took them to overtime in the MEAC tournament final. Um, it's a great time, great basketball. Uh, you know, a lot of folks remember how, you know, Coppa State was one of those teams that recruited from the inner city. Uh, they would go out to uh, Fagan had recruiting grounds in Philadelphia, where he would literally go into the public schools and bring them into this little private school in Baltimore. Um, you know, they had the reputation of being a bunch of thugs, but he turned them into men, which was, you know, still great to this day. Um, Fang is one of those guys I will always respect and I have love for. And I actually talked to him at least three or four times a year. And I'm even, I'm actually even close to his, uh, his secretary who actually celebrated her first uh, appearance in the NCAA tournament for a while as she is now in the University of New Orleans and of course they made the first four uh, this year so uh, just a salute to the Coppin State Eagles from 1997 as we just want folks to remember HBCU basketball is still a thing. For Don DeLuente, myself Tyler Ball now you know the score